Taylor is coming this morning to bring the message, so I want to pray for him and for our time here. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for bringing us here together. I thank you so much for the work that you have done um, through your son Jesus on the cross for us. God, I pray for these six new believers that have gone from death to life. Lord, that you would just draw them closer to you. I pray that they would get plugged into fellowship here at Good News, God, or wherever they are. Um, I also pray for Hudson, God, that you would just draw him to yourself as he grows older. I pray for Strider, Lord. I thank you so much, Holy Spirit, for the work that you have um, done in him this week to prepare this message and bring the word to us, God. I pray that you would open our hearts, that we could understand um, just how much you love us, God, and through that we would be able to love you more and love others. I pray for Strider, that he would have peace during this message, God. Um, just give him the words to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Aaron. How are we doing this morning? Yes? This is awesome. You know what? This is the first, okay, got to be honest. This is the first time the 9 o'clock service had more energy than the 1030 service when I asked that question. I did not expect that. I don't know what to do. This is not part of my message. I, was, um, I had something else prepared. Uh, and you want to try it again? All right, how are we, how we doing this morning? Yes, much better. Hey, my name is Strider. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome. Uh, so glad, so, so glad that you are here with us. We, um, we are looking at uh, a scripture, a passage today in Malachi. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Malachi. That's the last book in the Old Testament, right before the Gospel of Matthew. If you don't have a Bible, we actually have some in the lobby. If you don't have a Bible and would like to have your own copy of God's Word, would love for you to just walk by on your way out in the lobby, pick one of those out of the um, kind of the wall over there, and take it home with you. Put your name in it. It is yours. But if you don't have a Bible, you, you can want to follow along with us on the screens. You're welcome to do that. Um, Smiley is at World Golf Village this morning. Nobody panic. He's feeling great. Over, totally over uh, pneumonia. He did lose 12 pounds. Uh, did not have 12 pounds to lose, that guy. But um, he is, feels strong, and his voice is back, and so it's good to see him uh, back in the saddle. And um, I asked him this week as we were kind of praying and preparing and talking through this message, I said, how did, how did, we, get to, how did we get to Malachi? What, what, what prompted you know, our decision to kind of go through this book? And loved his response. He said two things. He said, well, Strider, I, I really enjoy Malachi because we, we all need Jesus, and the entire book of Malachi points to Jesus. And he said the other thing is that uh, Malachi... Uh, really points to uh, and speaks to the times that we're in currently. It's amazing how the Bible does that, right? That, that the things that happened in the past can speak to the things that are happening now. And so I love those, love those responses. And if you remember, as we talked about last week, if you were here last week, we're, we're talking through the history and the story of God's redemptive plan for his people. And if you remember that um, uh, back in uh, Exodus, uh, Israel, the nation, God's chosen nation, was held captive in Egypt. They were enslaved. And they cried out to God, and God freed them. And through a period of 40 years, brought them to a place. And, and for a time, they had the person and place that they were designed for. And then, as human, as they are and as we are, they began to take that for granted. And so, God, in his mercy, allowed them to be captured by another nation, nation of Babylon. And, and literally, they were physically taken to another country. Uh, and for a period of around 50 to 60 years, they were enslaved and held captive in this, in this uh, country, this nation of Babylon. And then they cried out to God again. And God heard their cries and released them from captivity. And Malachi, as he speaks, 
Uh, he is the, uh, the, the last uh, prophet within the Old Testament proclaiming the word of God to his people. And, and as he speaks, it's about 100 years since they've been freed from captivity. And you know what they're doing? The same old story. Just taking God for granted for all the things that he's given them. So last week, we, uh, we looked at um, uh, the first five verses of Malachi. And the way the book is structured is kind of interesting. Uh, God will say throughout this, throughout, this, um, throughout this book, and we'll look at all these together, God will say six things. And we call them arguments because the kind of the structure of the way Malachi writes is God says something, and then the people say, no, you didn't. And then God says, yes, I did, and here's, here's how I'm going to prove it to you. And so last week, we looked in these first five verses that God says, I have loved you. God makes that statement to his people. I have loved you. And the people, <laughs> the people respond and say, how have you loved us? And God gives evidence. And he says, I made a promise to you. I have kept it. You are my chosen ones, and I love you. That's the first five verses of Malachi. And those five verses are really important because they build on and feed into what we're going to, um, what we're going to talk about today. So if you have your Bible, Malachi chapter 1 verses 6 through 14. And let's read this together. Starting in verse 6, it says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I'm a master, where is my fear? We're going to talk about fear. Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, here's the people's argument, speaking back to God. But you say, how have we despised your name? And then God's going to give evidence. By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. <laughs> Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. Really important phrase in which Jesus, which God entitles himself uh, in this passage. And now, entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to you. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. You say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or is sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. God's word. Once upon a time in St. Augustine, there was a young couple who had been married for nine years. And as the date 
of their 10th wedding anniversary approached, the wife looked at the calendar and saw it coming. And so she turned to her husband and said, hey, babe, our, our anniversary's coming up. I, it would be great to do something to sell 10 years. That's a long time. It'd be great to do something to celebrate together. And he said, sounds awesome. What do you want to do? And she says, well, you know, I, I love Preserved. How about, how about we go to dinner at Preserved? And he goes, that's a great idea. She said, well, our anniversary's on a Tuesday, and ah, it kind of makes it a little bit awkward. And he's like, well, yeah, but that's the day. That's the day we got, the actual day that we got married. How about we, um, how about we just meet at Preserved after work? And she goes, okay. So Tuesday rolls around, and wife gets up, and she puts something extra nice on to go to work in, and goes to work, and finishes up the few things she has to do, and gets in her car, and drives to Preserved, and she gets there a few minutes early, and the hostess greets her and says, oh gosh, you know, welcome. What are you here for? And she goes, well, actually, I have a, I have a reservation, um, and um, we're celebrating 10 years, and, and the hostess goes, oh gosh, congratulations. What would you like for dessert? Because you get a couple of choices at Preserved, and she's like, I would love the creme brulee. If you haven't had the creme brulee at Preserved, highly recommend it. Okay, great. Well, let me show you to your table. We've got your reservation right here. And she says, okay, that'd be great. So she sits down, and six o'clock, Husband's not there. Well, that's okay. You know, 6.05, oh, there, there must be traffic, which is a real thing in St. Augustine now. Didn't think there ever would be, but there's, that's real. 6.10, oh, traffic must be really bad. 6.15, oh, I wonder if he's okay. I'm, I'm going to send him a text message. 6.20, husband comes walking around the corner. He's dressed in gym clothes, sweating. Hey, 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 where you been? Oh, I, I'm so sorry, babe. I just, I've been at the gym. You know, it was a long day at work, and I, I just thought, I'll, I'm just going to power through this quick workout. And, man, I, I just, you know, I worked up a great, a, a great lather, and, like, I just, I don't know, I just got into it and kind of lost track of time. And then I saw the guy that I've been trying to sell a 401k plan to, and he was like, hey, can you tell me more about that? And then I was, you know, took the advantage of the opportunity because, I mean, I need to land that client. And, and next thing I know, I just looked down, and, and it, it just, gosh, I'm just, I'm so sorry. I'm just late, but here I am. And she goes, then he goes, but, but, but wait, I actually have a gift for you. She goes, oh, okay, well, maybe, maybe this is, you know, going to turn itself on his head. And so out of his pocket, he pulls a piece of paper, and he goes, it's a trial gym membership, but it's the good one. It's the one that gives you 10% off at the smoothie bar. Like, I got this for you. How do you think she feels in that moment? Hurt? Unvalued? unworthy, and probably a secondary emotion that stemmed from all that anger. And that is exactly how God feels when he's talking to the people in Malachi, verses 6 through 14. That is the same emotion in which he speaks through his prophet. He's hurt, feels unvalued, feels forgotten, and that is what he's communicating to his people. Let's pick up in verse 6. God says, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. In the first five verses that we looked at last week, God communicates something very specifically about who he is, his nature, his attributes, his character. And what he communicates in verses 1 through 5 is he says, I have loved you. And the people say, How have you loved us? And he says, I have chosen you. 
I have promised you, you are my promise holders. I have adopted you as my son and daughter. And that's certainly a huge part of God's nature and character. But this, 6 through 14, is very carefully connected to it because it also presents another side of God's nature because he wants the people of Israel to understand him as both father and master. So you have the, the eminence of God. I have chosen you. It's compassionate love. It's tender. It's affectionate. And also, in verse 6, you have the father and I am a master. What he's communicating to his people is, as he asks the question, if then I am a father, where is my honor? We're not so comfortable in our culture today with what the Bible communicates over and over and over again. And that's the, the reality that when God makes promises and covenants with his people, it's always a superior party and an inferior party. God is superior and we are inferior. And our culture today doesn't understand what to do with that. But that's not, that's not appropriate. And so we're used to constantly making and, and viewing everything as equals. But God says, no, 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 I'm superior and you're inferior. I'm the father, you're the son. I'm the master, you're the servant. So the question he's asking is, where is my honor? This is, this is a state, this is a position that I hold in your life. Why aren't you, why aren't you honoring me? And then he says, if I'm a master, where's my fear? And he's not talking about the terrified fear. We're going to read a passage of scripture where people are terrified, and that fear means terrified. But this fear means a reverent fear. This is a, this is a, um, a state in which we are in awe of who God is. When God says, if I'm a master, where's my fear? It is a, it is a submissive posture. God is asking us to, to, to bend our knee, to recognize his superiority and our inferiority. And these two um, elements, components of how God wants us to know and understand him are connected. And they feed one another. And I'll show you how that, show you how that happens in a, in a minute. Because God is also tender and compassionate. And he chooses. He calls us by name. And the fact that, that he would be superior and do that is unbelievable. But that's the question he's asking Israel. Where's my honor and where's my fear? And the people are just apparently totally confused because they're like, what are you talking about? How are we even dishonoring your name? How are we not fearing you? Verse 7, God says, By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? Then he says, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. And one of the things that God says over and over and over again to the people of Israel in this passage is he gives himself, he calls himself a specific title. And what he refers to himself as as he's, as he's speaking to his people is he says, I am the Lord of hosts. Eight times in eight verses, God will say, I am the Lord of hosts. Let me read them to you. 
Verse 6, if I'm a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 8, will he be pleased with you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 9, will he show any favor to you, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 10, I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 11, my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 13, what a weariness this is, you say, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 13, shall I accept from this from your hand, says the Lord of hosts. Verse 14, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts. What is God doing by repeating eight times in eight verses, I am the Lord of hosts? Well, there's two contexts. The first is this. When God says that I am the Lord of hosts, what he means is he is the God of angels. Specifically, armies of angels. And he's saying to his people, do not forget, do not take for granted that although I have chosen you, I have adopted you, I am still the commander who controls all armies, the celestial armies. There is not a battle that I cannot win. It is one-sided that I have at my beck and command legions of angels. I am the Lord of hosts. I am the God of angel armies. And the second context is that I am the God of the stars. Not the astrology version of this convoluted stuff. No, literally, I am the creator of all things. That I spoke and the universe came into being. I created all stars, trillions and trillions of stars. And I know every single one of them by name, and I uphold all of this in one hand. I am the Lord of hosts. Communicating that to his people over and over and over again in order to help them recognize and to shift their posture from despising his table into, oh my gosh, I'm honoring you as the creator and Lord of all things. You are the Lord of hosts. I will never forget being in Daytona Beach this summer with a bunch of middle school and high school students at Passion Camp when I was reminded of the Lord of Hosts. We're in the Ocean Center, huge building, with uh, 7,000 other teenagers. It was amazing. Trust me, it was. I know some of you are thinking that doesn't sound so good. It was amazing. Uh, and Louis Giglio is speaking that night about something that he had watched earlier that day. And um, if you've listened to Louis at all, you know he just nerds out on really random stuff sometimes. And so I'm sitting here thinking, okay, he's going to do his thing. And, um, and he's talking about, he's talking about images that he has seen earlier that day of a telescope that had been sent into deep space. And I'm listening there, and I'm doing my best to follow along and track with him. And apparently, he had uh, watched a presentation by NASA, and they had given a report uh, on this telescope, named after a guy named James Webb, that they had sent one million miles into space. I don't know how you get that far out there. It just blows my mind. But they've sent this telescope a million miles into space, and it's in some sort of, some, in sort of some space where the gravitational pull, like this way and that way, sort of keeps it held in check. It's not orbiting. It's just sitting there. And um, they sent this telescope out there to take pictures and to send them back to give us an image of what deep space looks like. And apparently that morning they had released the first uh, pictures from this web telescope. I'm going to show them to you in just a second, but hang on. To kind of give us, you know, 
normal people uh, sort of some perspective of what the images that we're about to see are. He, he said, now imagine that your eye is a, is a telescope, and uh, if you were to use your eye and you were to hold your, your hand out and look through a pinhole uh, and use your telescopic eye a million miles into space, that this little pinhole is what you would see. And this is the image that he put up on the screen. Maybe we might need to, can you all see that? There we go. This is the image that we're looking at. And he says, this is just, this is just a pinhole. Now imagine if you could see a football field worth of images. What do you think that picture would look like? And I'm sitting there going, this is amazing. There's a lot of stars on that screen. And then he goes, yeah, yeah, and by the way, those aren't stars on the screen. Those are galaxies. Everything that you see on the screen is billions and billions of stars huddled together to form a galaxy. And all of a sudden, I felt so, so small in a very, very amazing way. And I'm looking at this picture, and he goes, yeah, see kind of to the right, maybe halfway up the, halfway up the screen on the right, see the one looks like a swirl? Doesn't that kind of look like a Milky Way galaxy? That's kind of what our galaxy looks like. And then there's letters that are, you know, there's ones that are shaped kind of look like ends. Everything that you see on the screen is a galaxy. And all of a sudden, I'm reminded that God is the Lord of hosts. He holds all that in place. And that same Lord of hosts has called us by name, chosen us, adopted us, loved us, allows us to call him our Heavenly Father. That is what God is communicating to his people over and over and over again to Israel when he says, I am the Lord of hosts. Israel's response in verse 7, they're bringing polluted food. Matter of fact, God calls it something very specific. He says, you are despising my name, my table. What does he mean by despise? Two contexts here. Number one, if you think something is bad, you can despise it. And maybe that's a little bit of what's happening here. It's been a hundred years since they've been freed from Babylon. Not a whole lot of movement. God has said Messiah is coming, but it doesn't look like he's coming around the corner anytime soon. People are grumbling. Maybe there is some of their heart that is despising God in that sense. But the other connotation for the word despise is to make very little of. And that, I think, is at the heart of what Israel is doing in relationship with the Lord of hosts. That they are making very little of who he is, what he's called them to. So God says, you're despising me by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. What's interesting is that the practice of offering these sacrifices is not for God's benefit. 
The Lord of hosts is not like some Greek God who needs our incense and prayers and food and drink in order to survive. No, no, no. God is saying, this is not for my benefit. This is for you. I'm calling you to offer sacrifices on a regular and consistent basis because I want you to always remember that you are dependent on me, that you are broken, you are not enough, and that you need me. That is what God is calling his people to. And, what, and how is Israel responding? They are despising him, his name, his practices. Verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? God's going to get real direct real quick. And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Hey, translation, what you are doing, Israel, is not just not good. Let's call it what it is. I'm going to call that evil. Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show favor if you do that? God calls that not bad. He calls it evil. But that is revealing of our heart towards God. And in that our story too, I can't help but read through the story of Israel and see myself in the pages. Because the reality is that every single one of us, from the moment that we were conceived, wants to be our own God. Every single one of us has put God at a distance and said, I think I can run my life better than you. We want to call our own shots. We want to make our own decisions. We want to do and say and think whatever we want. We want control. We're, we're reluctant to admit that we're broken. And even if we do come to a recognition that the world is broken and we're broken, we think we have what it takes within ourselves to fix it. And what the Bible says is that's not bad, that's evil. And, and that has a specific name to it, and it's sin. <clears throat> And what God said the penalty for sin is, is death. That what we deserve, because of who we are, our very nature, the things that we think and do and say just come out of who we are. And because of that, what we deserve is death. But God is a God of mercy. Because what we deserve, done. And yet it's a miracle that you and I, by his grace, are continuing to live and breathe and think, right now. He is merciful. What we deserve is death. And amazingly, God invites us to the table in verse 9. He says this, and now entreat the favor of God. What does it mean to entreat? Simply means to seek, want, you're invited, come to me. And what are we to seek? We are to seek the favor of God, specifically that he may be gracious to us. We, we are to admit our brokenness, admit our neediness, and we are to come to God and ask and to seek specifically for mercy and grace. 
God's table is a table of hospitality. God's table is a table of grace. God's table is a table of mercy, and the people are despising that. They are not making very much of that mercy. Should be dead in an instant. Taking that for granted. So God says in verse 10, this is funny, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Translation, I just wish y'all would stop. Wish one of you would stand up and have the guts to say, not only is this not good, this is evil, and we're not going to do it anymore until we get this, our hearts right before God. That's what God is saying to his people. I just wish you'd stop. This doesn't offer you any benefit. Certainly, certainly not helpful for me in this process. Why don't you just close the doors and stop lighting fires if this is going to be the attitude of your hearts? Man, if it was me, dead. Everybody, me included. But God is a God of grace and mercy because in verse 11, this is unbelievable that this story from cover to cover is the same story told out with different names and different people and different times and different settings. Same story about how we're not worthy and yet God intervenes. In verse 11, he says this. He's going to make a promise. For from the rising of the sun to its setting. From the rising of the sun to, is that right? East, nope, east to west. From the rising of the sun to its setting, meaning everything. That's the context, everything. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name, future tense, will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God makes a promise. If you remember last week, we talked about Jacob, both the person and what Jacob represents, Israel. And God makes a promise with Jacob and says, I'm going to bless you, but you also have a purpose, to be a blessing to all the nations. And Israel keeps messing that up. So God makes a promise that he says, one day my name will be great among the nations. Translation, people from every country, every tribe, every nation, Every race, every language will be praising my name. Will be offering up incense, literally meaning prayers. Will be praying to me. That is the promise that is to come. And it points to a future event. And interestingly, in the book of Malachi, God is going to say six things to his people. And in this Older Testament of what we have of Scripture, Malachi is the last prophet to record God's word. God's going to say these six things, and then you know what happens? God goes silent. And for 400 years, there is no one who holds the office of prophet. There's not a person who speaks on behalf of the Lord. There is no thus saith the Lord. It just gets silent. Until... One day, a child is born. And Luke records it in chapter 2, 
of his gospel like this. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. This is the terrified. Because when an angel shows up, anytime in scripture, people freak out. They were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, don't be terrified, fear not, for behold, I bring you, listen to this, this is important, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. What was promised in Malachi, that God would make his name great amongst all the nations, is now coming to be true in the birth of this child. That this will be good news for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The promise includes, I am sending my son because I have chosen you. I will adopt you and he will do everything necessary that you've been unable to do. And when that news is proclaimed, the Lord of hosts opens up heaven and the multitudes of angels begin proclaiming and praising his name. That the father, that the master says, this is who I am and this is what I will do. And that is the good news. Jesus would grow up and from the moment of his conception, he is righteous and holy and perfect. For almost 33 years, he's gonna walk and everything that God commands and says and do to do, Jesus is going to do to the very letter of the law. He is perfect in regards to the law. He is an unblemished, as John the Baptist would say in his first chapter of his gospel, look, there goes the Lamb of God. That Jesus would be a spotless, unblemished, male lamb. And then one day, God would say, this has been my plan all along. Jesus, I want you to go to the cross. And Jesus willingly says, I will go. And not only is he the perfect sacrifice, not only has all of these, all of this shedding of blood, all of this killing of lambs and goats pointed to this day, not only is Jesus that perfect sacrifice, but he also becomes the priest because he climbs up on the cross and he administers the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. And 2 Corinthians 5 said, all sin poured into Christ. That Jesus died the death that we deserved. And what his promise is, what our part is, is simply to believe and to receive that. Have you done that? Have you come to a point in your life 
where you are willing to admit that you have despised God. That in your words and thoughts and actions and because of who you are, that you've made little of God. Matter of fact, that you're willing to even say, because of that, it's evil. And what I deserve is death. And if you come to the point in your life where you recognize and realize that Jesus is the unblemished, perfect, male Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Won't you believe that? That is the good news. Aaron was talking about the Connect card earlier, and one of the, one of the things that's on there is the ability to put or indicate on your card that today is the day that you have put your faith and trust in Christ. That's you. We'd love for you to put that on your card. We would love to celebrate that because that's a really big deal when God brings one of his children home. A couple more verses, then we'll be done. Malachi 12, God says, But you profane it when you say the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness is this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what is taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord. You know what Jesus does for us on the cross? He offers forgiveness for our polluted worship. And not only that, he fills us with his Holy Spirit and enables us to rightly, not perfectly, still broken, rightly worship him. That we never have to worry about polluted worship ever again because we are in Christ. Don't you want that forgiveness? And then, verse 14, this is amazing. He says, Cursed be the cheat who is a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Verse 14, aren't you thankful that we have a heavenly father who has a male in his flock and from the beginning of time vows it and sacrifices that which is unblemished. That the Lord of hosts, the creator and sustainer of galaxies, would have that kind of grace and that kind of mercy. And so, how do we respond to that? A few weeks ago, as we were finishing up Colossians, we talked about a definition of worship. And, uh, and worship is, is simply summed up like this. It is our loving response to God's revealing of himself. That worship is our loving response to God's revealing, God's actions towards us. So where do we go from here? The Lord of hosts, the sustainer of all things. Where do we go from here? I think it's helpful to look at um, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And um, this is what it says. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, here's a part I want you to pay attention to, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, 
This is Paul writing, New Testament. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let me read it again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The thing you have to understand is that our walk with Christ comes out of something. And that is what Paul is trying to communicate in this one verse in Romans. He's going to make an appeal. Brothers, sisters, if you are in Christ, that's us. That's me, that's you. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. And what does he appeal by? The mercies of God. What does that mean? Paul is encouraging his readers to rest in, abide in, remember the mercies and grace of God. That you and I, while we get to show up here on Sunday mornings and worship together, that you and I, as we do life, as we live day by day, we rest in, we remember, we don't depart from, we stick to the mercies of God. We remember how much grace and mercy we have been shown. Because, did you know that your purpose here on earth is to display God's character, God's nature, God's attributes to the people around you? That's a sobering thought. That no matter what you do for work, no matter what stage of life you're in, if you are here on earth, your purpose is to display the nature, character, and attributes of God. And Paul is saying that there is a lifestyle of mercy that communicates to people that God is a merciful God. Because a lot of people, that's not what they think of when they think of God. So Paul is saying, I want you to live a lifestyle that puts the very mercies of God on display. That's his charge in this passage to those who are in Christ. It's a very weighty feeling. So how do you do that? How do you live? How do you live a lifestyle of mercy? Well, it makes me think of Jesus. And what I see in Jesus is Jesus walked very, very closely with his heavenly Father. And so if we want to live a lifestyle of mercy, the first thing that we do is we spend time with the one who's merciful. We've been, um, we've been reading through the New Testament together this year. A lot of you have, um, have been doing that. It's awesome. Um, I think there's maybe a few scattered studies around the, um, around the auditorium if you, if you want to grab one and look at the reading plan. We just finished up 2 Corinthians. Tomorrow we start Galatians. You know what Galatians is about? The mercy of God. It speaks over and over and over again to the reality that Christ has done it all for us. That Christ has made us righteous and acceptable to God. It is the gospel over and over and over again. You want some good news? Tomorrow, pick up your Bible. If you don't have one, there's some on the way out. Pick up your Bible. Open it up to Galatians chapter 1. Read it. Before you do, pray. Ask God, say, I want to know and see and experience your mercy 
as we spend this time together. See what he will reveal, and I promise you, he will. His grace and his mercy. Entreat it. Seek it. Look for it. Look for God's grace. Open it up. Read it. Treasure it. And then when you find it, write it down. Tell somebody. Enjoy it. Pass it on. If we want to live a lifestyle of mercy, spend time with the one who is merciful. Because you don't deserve his grace and his mercy, and yet he is a God of hospitality and extends that to us. And the second thing, Aiden Plumley, is, sorry, student pastor came out. Uh, the second thing is, I want you to, as you read this book and finish it, or read this chapter and finish it, I want you to think about one person in your life who is undeserving of your mercy. Is it your spouse? Is it your kids? Is it your parents? Is it your siblings? Is it your teacher? Is it your coach? Is it your student? Is it your neighbor? Is it your friend? Who is undeserving of your mercy? Is it the person who cuts you off in traffic on the way to work? And what I want us to do collectively, I am speaking to myself as much as I'm speaking to you. What I want us to do collectively is to respond in mercy to that person. In what we say, in what we think, in what we do, to offer mercy and grace. Because in our actions, in our thoughts, in what we say, in what we do, we are communicating to people, this is what God is like. Man, that's hard to do. You know what? You, you, you realize you're not meant to do that alone? That God says, here's a group of people to do that with. You have a group of people that you're linked in with who are challenging you to, picking you up when you fail, praying for you to offer mercy. You know, it's not enough for you to just go Lone Ranger that yourself. You are meant to do life with people. Don't miss that opportunity. What I'm praying for this week is that as we go and offer and extend mercy, undeserved mercy and grace to people this week, I'm praying that one of you, the person that you show this to, will respond and say, why would you do such a thing? And when they do, that you would simply say, because God is a God of great mercy. And I have been shown great mercy, and that's all I know to do for other people, is to show them mercy. I want you to have an opportunity to simply share and present the gospel. That's what I'm praying for this week, that you and I would be with the one who is merciful, and that you and I would extend undeserved grace and mercy to those around us. Romans 12:1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's pray. God, you are the Lord of hosts, and we bow before you. You are the one who created all things by a word. You spoke it all into being. And Lord, you uphold that and sustain everything. And yet, at the same time, you're a promise giver. And you choose us, and you adopt us, and you're hospitable, and you extend and show your grace and your mercy. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And Lord, I pray that we, this week, that you'd give us a supernatural ability to stay close to the one who's merciful. And that you would allow us to remember and remain and abide in that mercy and that grace. And that you would help us, as broken we are, to extend that to those around us. And this we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You stand with